You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. Meat grown in a lab, produce grown on a shelf, plants recombined to taste just like meat. These days, the future of food is arriving at breakneck speeds. But will that future be any better than where we've already been? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Well, of course, all this high-tech cuisine comes along with an array of promises that it'll be more environmentally sustainable, that it'll be healthier, more ethical. Today on the program, though, we're going to take a closer look at those claims and try to find out how well the reality of these food innovations are living up to their hype. Guiding our conversation, we're going to welcome on now Larissa Zimbaroff. She's a Bay Area-based investigative reporter, also the author of the new book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. Larissa Zimbaroff, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Hey, Keith, thanks for having me on. So that title, Technically Food, uh, I think it's a clever way of preparing the reader for what's in store in your book, uh, because we are talking about products that are really pushing the boundaries of what uh, I think many of us would think of as food. Uh, There's, uh, of course, the the famous plant-based patties that have a a lot of complex science uh, behind them. Uh, Probably many of our listeners have tried them at this point, but uh, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. You also write about uh, meat that can be grown in vats, uh, new advances in indoor farming, and uh, you write about just a dizzying array of emerging protein sources from peas to algae to fungi. So uh, really for us mere food consumers, there is an awful lot to keep track of. Yeah, there's there's so much to keep track of that I wanted to do it for you. I wanted to <laughs> send myself out there, try as many foods as I could, and ask as many questions that of the founders that I was meeting and learn as much as possible. I think maybe there aren't, they aren't all answered in my book, but I mm. hope that I've brought them up and I hope that I've highlighted where people should be looking at. I mean, the one thing you can be looking at is the nutrition facts label on the back of packages, but that still hides a lot of information. And I hope that the book uh, shares that, shares why you should care and where we're going. And you are kind of the perfect person to go on this journey because, uh, as we've been saying, you are uh, an investigative journalist, but you also have a background in tech and uh, a very specific interest in yourself understanding the contents of food uh, for your own health considerations. Yeah, Keith, I have type 1 diabetes. It's something I've had since I was 12 years old and something I used to kind of keep secret. Uh, eventually, mm. I, I figured out that it didn't. it was something that... Um, I don't know. It made me cool, right? I look at food very differently. I, I say in my book that I see through food um, mm. or it's like x-ray vision. I look at food for its macronutrients, its protein, its, its carbohydrates, its fat, its fiber. The, these things all have an impact on how they are digested in our body. And for me personally- and you feel them quite immediately. Right. For me personally, I have to decide on how much insulin to take. I have to look at my blood sugar. I have to see it go up and down. You know, there's, there's so many questions like, will I exercise later? Mm. And so I look at food much differently. And then I kind of 
realized that my technology background from working in the Bay Area and high tech and internet 1.0 and internet 1.2.0, you know, I could put these two together. I could really like focus on how technology companies were tackling food. And I could look at it through my, through my lens, which was like, what's in it and what are you doing mm. in a way that I felt that most people weren't. Yeah, and so you're bringing to uh, a lot of these new food technologies a bit of a skeptical eye, and uh, it's uh, a little bit of a refreshing take because uh, for the past several years, we have been hearing mostly about the promises of all these food innovations. Uh, as we mentioned at the top, you know, that the environmental benefits, the health benefits, the fact that uh, many of them would uh, harm animals less. Uh, but uh, a theme of your book is that uh, these new technologies are all extraordinarily complicated and have the potential to carry some uh, significant unintended consequences. I think one uh, good example maybe to start out our conversation would be the example of plant-derived heme. It's a a compound used to make impossible burgers taste uh, more like meat, kind of that bloody, savory uh, flavor, um, uh, iron flavor. Tell us a little bit about the importance of plant-based heme and why it's not yet entirely clear what the health impact uh, will be. Exactly, Keith. The thing with heme is that it's actually also found in animals and it's found in humans. So it's in our blood. Mm. So this, you know, kind of quote unquote bloody look or and then eventual when it's cooked, it catalyzes and it uh, brings out flavor. That's what Pep Brown, the founder of Impossible, says, that it brings out flavor in his burger. It also colors the burger. So there's two uses for heme. Uh, and he, he they're deriving heme from soy that's uh, genetically modified to produce heme at high quantities. So like they could get it from soy that's grown in the ground from the root nodules, but they can't because they need it at such vast amounts. Uh, there's only a tiny amount in, an, in a single burger, but they need it, right? They want like, they want global domination. They need it at big quantities. Yeah. So um, the thing with heme is that, you know, the messages is that from nutritionists and doctors is that we're supposed to reduce our animal meat consumption. And mm. one of the things that has potential for harm and and there are studies that show it pointing to cancer is heme in animal meat. So my question is, how is plant-based heme any different? Or is it different? Is it not different? Maybe it's maybe because it's plant-based, it's fine. Um, maybe because it's genetically modified, it's it's also fine. But there are questions we don't know. And when Impossible got approval to have heme in its burgers. They went to the FDA and they got something called grass, uh, generally recognized as safe. So to get grass, you have to, the company has to put together reams and reams and reams of data. I think, you know, it was like over a thousand pages of data to get approval to put it on their ingredient in the, in their burger. And that material, that science, that research all comes from Impossible. And that's what the FDA uses to approve it. And they did. Uh, it mm. took a little time. It took it took a few reviews, but they did. And it was in um, under a year, if I'm recalling correctly. There's a lot of numbers in my head, but compared to uh, ingredients that are also in our food system from the past that had to go through the same kind of uh, efforts with the FDA, you know, they might have taken three years. So we're seeing compressed timelines of ingredients coming to market and being approved to go into foods that. Um, Maybe we don't know what the actual effects are on our bodies, right? And so back to heme, it is an ingredient that is confirmed by impossible, but it's not confirmed by the world, right? We're sort of his experiment, right? He's, we're all eating the, his burger and he is a scientist, so maybe it's just fine for us, but we don't know that. And we've, we have examples of food in our past 
that haven't turned out to be good, right? And we took, the, we took them in, we embraced them, and then we said, uh-oh, wait, this isn't good for us. So I, I, want us, I want to be more thoughtful. Now that we have so much knowledge about our food system, let's, 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 let's look at this deeper. Yeah, and I think that that also points to another important uh, fact about uh, these uh, plant-derived uh, compounds. You know, when we say plant-derived, we, uh, there's a he- heavy emphasis on the derived because there's just so much process in between the plants themselves and uh, the final product. And it can be easy to lose sight of that when you see the, the finished patty. But your book really illustrates that there is uh, an, an, an awful lot of processing that is going on here. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I like to think about, because uh, many like to argue that everything we eat is, has some level of processing, you know, mm. bread and cheese and, you know, coffee, like everything has been um, milk from cows. Everything has like been touched in some sort of way. But what I like to think about is, is steps of processing. How many steps has an ingredient taken to get into my food? How many countries has it, has the have borders have it, has it crossed to get into my food? And, you know, with, with food being so global because of shipping, the, the kind of, kind of how, what shipping brought to food, you know, pea protein comes from China, even though it's grown in the U.S. or Canada, uh, rice may come from China or India and then get sent to China to be fractionated and it comes back here. Uh, coconut oil or palm oil probably comes from Southeast Asia. And so each of these ingredients has been touched like numerous times before getting into a burger that's then put together and then sent to us. So it's like the steps, it's the levels of steps. It's how many countries, it's how many people may have touched your food. And, you know, I'm not, I just don't want, I don't want to be like all food is bad, but it's just that, um, you know, our, our American diet's not healthy. We're not known for being the healthy people and that our diet is being now that it's conquered the u.s right it's being shipped out to globally right our diet right we're making people unhealthy by by pushing out the foods that we've created all right i just want to reintroduce you real quick before we move on for anybody just joining us you are listening to kcbs in depth your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the bay area and beyond i'm keith menconi today on the program we're speaking with investigative journalist Larissa Zimbroff, who's spent the last several years learning the ins and outs of the unfolding world of future food, uh, from plant-based burgers to meat grown in a lab. Uh, she wrote about what she learned in her new book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. So, uh, Larissa Zimbroff, another, another facet of this is the uh, the complex processes that it takes to get those plant proteins uh, into uh, the, the the finished products or, or what it takes to grow them. And you discuss the possibility that some nutrients may be lost along the way. You, you draw the example of Wonder Bread, uh, which is a product that came out in the last century. And uh, it seems also, to some extent, didn't live up to its promise. I'm wondering if you could draw out that analogy. What happened with Wonder Bread and, and why might it be a good uh, warning for what could come ahead now. Yeah. You know, we're told now to eat whole wheat bread. We're told to get the fiber, get the, get the whole grain, right? Whole grains, ancient grains. These are good things for us. These are things that are missing from our diet, especially fiber. So Wonder Bread was created to sit on the counter for weeks and weeks on end and not change. It Mm. was squishy, pliable white bread that was made to make mom's life easier to make her kids lunches. So yeah, so Wonder Bread is essentially stripped of its flavor, right? The supermarket of the 70s became absent of, of, of variability, of 
different options. Like it became Velveeta cheese, parquet margarine, Wonder Bread. And these things were, you know, kind of ingenuity, right? It was technological ingenuity. We were using food science. We were working with food scientists back then, right? We embraced it. We didn't want our foods touched by human hands, right? And then, and then in the eighties, we got into exercise. So people started thinking about their health more often. Um, and then, you know, it was probably like in the two thousands, we got, we had uh, Michael Pollan and Dan Barber, who started bringing, talking about Alice Waters, who started talking about how important it was to know our fruits and vegetables and our farmer's markets and to eat from the source. And we started talking about farm to table and transparency. And, you know, I thought that's where we were going, but now we've got technology and uh, innovation coming back. And, it's, and now it's fueled by all this money and this fervor, right, to create new things that help the help save the planet, right? Now that, and now that the climate is being paid attention to, it's because coming, there's this urgency around these foods that, again, it's technology, it's technological innovation that it is being embraced right now, that my question is, will we, will we embrace it in 10 years? And this seems to be another area where uh, it's not entirely clear whether or not those nutrients uh, are preserved with some of these uh, high-tech processes? Yeah, we, we, we don't know. Like when I when I went to Vertical Farms and I tried their greens, right? They're green. They're delicious. I love salad. We're talking about like indoor hydroponics, right? Uh, 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 or, or organic produce getting grown inside. Exactly. Exactly. So it's uh, it's like tall. It's long rows of trays of of. Usually it's uh, leafy greens right now because they're sort of the easiest and quickest to grow, but tomatoes are being grown indoors and peppers are being grown indoors. But uh, leafy greens is primarily what's happening inside and it's stacked super high. You can't see to the top. You know, there are sensors on everything. It's either being uh, aeroponically grown, which means the roots just dangle in the air and it's misted, or it's hydroponically, which means the roots are in water. So it does use less water. We, we, should be confident that the water is much cleaner than it might be if it was outdoors and getting hit by, you know, pesticides and fertilizers, uh, chemical fertilizers that we don't know of. So it's not that we know so much about what's in the farm because we don't necessarily know what's happening in the farm, but in, in vertical farms, they're growing these leafy greens that are actually much different from what we know from farms. They're less, they have less fiber. They're, they're counteracting against less environmental impacts like wind and pests, um, bugs that might actually help things grow better or bigger or, or more, um, more nutritional, have more nutritional value. And I asked the vertical farms, like, so show me some reports that sh- show me studies that tell me what the nutrients are in your foods. And they didn't share. And so um, a, a complaint I get about the book is that I don't answer all my questions, but that's because I can't get the answers to all my questions. And this is our the food. The answers the, simply aren't there yet. The, the answers aren't there yet or they're not being shared. And, you know, mm. we know more about the drugs we're taking, right? But we, we know mm. less about the food we're eating. And so I, I want somehow to bring that level of scrutiny that we put on drugs to food because mm. that's what keeps us healthy. That's what you know, 600,000 people died of COVID in the United States, right? That's because of underlying conditions. That's because of our diet. That's because of how we're eating and, you know, how we're living. Speaking with Larissa Zimbaroff, uh, once again, the author of the new book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. 
So I, I do want to get to some of these emerging technologies that, that may be a little bit less familiar than the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Meat Patties. Uh, but just sticking with this question of health for one more moment, um, you know, I've, I've spoken with uh, some of the folks behind Impossible uh, Burger back in the past, and uh, they made the points to me that they are trying to make a patty that is going to be eaten, something that's going to be bought, something that consumers are going to want to buy. They're not in the business of making a pure health product. You know, burgers, the original burger is not a health product, and they're not necessarily trying to make something that is an ultra-healthy version. Um, so are, are, are we perhaps not holding them to a, a fair standard when we uh, are, are hoping that it would be, you know, that, that the healthiest uh, version of a burger possible? That is a valid point that he's just, Pat Brown and his company are just trying to create something delicious and uh, feed the world something that is, um, you know, satiating and enjoyable, right? That is that is one of the points of eating food. But one of the problems with the food system is probably that we don't have nutritional standards that we put on these capitalist, capital, on capitalistic companies. Like mm. if you want to make a profit on feeding us food, then you also have to hit certain guidelines, right? You know, perhaps your your audience has heard of Nestle's kind of brouhaha that happened, you know, over the last two weeks, which was that some internal documents were leaked that had Nestle being like, oh, my gosh, 70 percent of our portfolio of products is not healthy. Mm. <laughs> and so it's like if Nestle had had governmental regulations, it said, you know, um, this percentage of your product assortment has to be, you know, healthy or this, you know, I think that. I think that if people are going to make money off of feeding us, you know, foods that fire our, you know, excited, excitable brains, right, with fat and delicious, you know, salt and things like that, then I also think that they need to fit hit standards that of nutri- nutritional standards. And if the company is going to be mission based, I think that that's why Pat Brown is being held to a, like under a magnifying glass is because they have these missions, right? They're going out and saying we're saving the world, right? We're saving the mm. animals. I want people to stop eating animals. Great. I, I'm 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 in. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. If we were to stop eating animals tomorrow, okay. I I still eat them, but not frequently. And I'm okay with my diet changing, like not eating uh, bluefin tuna from the sea because it's overfished, right? I'm okay with the the fallout. But um, if Pat Brown wants to be mission based, then I think he does need to sell us something healthier. Let's talk a little bit about the environmental side of all of this. And uh, you write at length about where the technology currently stands for lab-grown meat. We're basically talking about you take the, the cells of whatever meat product you're trying to eat and you're, you're growing that in some kind of a vat, some kind of, uh, so, so some kind of container, and uh, you have grown the protein up uh, cell by cell by cell by cell. Uh, it seems very compelling because, you know, no animal has to suffer while those cells are growing. And uh, it's going to literally be the, the same cells that you would have gotten uh, from whatever animal it would have been. Uh, but you sort of trace uh, what it takes to bring these processes that are very complicated, very new, bring them to scale. And again, we'd be looking at an industrial process uh, that would take quite a bit of resources. And you suggest that it's not entirely clear what the environmental impact would be once you bring it to that scale. Exactly. You know, we are industrial ag- animal agriculture is something that everyone not everyone, that many people are are unhappy with and would like to do away with or to figure out a different way. And Certainly so, growing awareness, yeah. Yeah, growing awareness to the climate and what, what industrial ag- 
agriculture is doing to help create these climate issues. And yeah. But that's an industrial system that if cultured meat were to scale, would be replaced with an industrial system. So it's giant factories full of um, what they're called as either uh, cultivators or bioreactors, giant stainless steel tanks that are that have water, that have nutrients, you know, carbohydrates, uh, has insulin, it has hormones, it has things to fuel the cells to grow. And while the cells are in the vat, they're actually alive. Until they're mm-hmm. harvested, they're actually not killed. It's so funny that these like same words can still be used for, for like cells and in, in animals. And so uh, there's a study by the University of Oxford out of England that says that initially cultured meat, and so, again, this is all theoretical because no one has scaled. Everyone's just making it right now at sort of pilot or lab based uh, bench scale. And so the study says that initially uh, cultured meat is better for the environment, but that eventually animal agriculture surpasses it because animals produce methane. And as a greenhouse gas, methane dissipates more rapidly than carbon, which is what comes from energy. Now, if, you know, in California, we have such a great renewable energy system, like we're really really leading the way, right? They make cars for California and everywhere else, right? So we know we're doing better, but that's just California. Typically, when I ask uh, founders how they're running energy and I ask them if it's solar, they say, or wind, and they're like, you know, we're just using, we're just using our municipal energy and it's just coming from the grid, right? So if the answer is, I don't know, and it's just coming from the grid, then they're still creating a problem. They still need vast amounts of water, uh, less water than animals need, but you know, water is one of the things I'm watching, especially living in California with the drought. Um, our dependency on water is, uh, concerning. That is to me, if something were to happen with our water supply, that's when, that's when the science fiction happens. Like that's when we don't know what we're eating. Yeah. And so again, just, uh, what you're speaking to there is the very complicated systems that are involved in each one of these decisions and how just changing one variable brings into play a whole nother set of considerations. So it's, uh, certainly helpful that you're helping us think through all of this. Uh, once again, we are speaking with Larissa Zimbaroff. She is an investigative journalist, the author of the new book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. This is KCBS In Depth, and I am Keith Manconi. So we, uh, only have a, a few minutes left in the program, but I, I think I do want to push back on just one other point, just to maybe get your perspective a, a little bit firmer, because, you know, somebody listening to this could say, these are all very valid questions, and of course that they should be asked, but when we compare the food future that is getting cooked up in Silicon Valley versus the food present that we have right now, you know, as you just said, uh, there is a lot of dissatisfaction with the current food system and uh, large-scale agricultural farming and uh, in industrial slaughter. And so given the current problems of the system that we have right now, shouldn't we give the benefit of the doubt to anybody who's trying to shake up that system? I mean, you're coming at this with a a very skeptical tone. Should we perhaps be willing to grant a little bit more of a benefit of the doubt to somebody who has big ideas? Keith, you called me out. That's good. That's good. You're right. We 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 should be, I I want to be giving them a a chance. What I don't want is I don't want them to have to want to scale and go global, Mm. right? All of these companies, that is what they're trying to do kind of instantly. And that's my problem. My problem is don't, don't try to feed the world instantly without, without doing the due diligence. Exactly. Like even like Ethan Brown of Beyond Meat was in the supermarkets in the Midwest, like trying to feed women like his his plant based foods. And, you know, and they'd be like, how do I get my husband to eat this? Right. He was sampling. 
Yeah. You know, at the farmer's market, you have like, uh, you know, products that crop up and people are like trying it out. They're like seeing how it goes. But that's not what's happening with cultured meat. That's like cultured meat wants to go global. Mm. Right. I mean, there's so many things, so many dependencies for them. Right. They have to get approval from the FDA and the USDA. They have to like get the money. Right. They have to they have to answer to investors. And so it, it's it. These aren't food companies. These are technology companies. Mm. Right. So it's like, what if Facebook were to like be nowhere and then the next day they had their billions of users right and that's what culture meat is trying to do that kind of that kind of like like crazy like mind-boggling system like yeah you know one of my ideas right now is um space uh, how we feed people in space is something that's being talked about a lot right we need things that can grow in space that can go up there that's lightweight and you know, Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. Jeff Bezos is going to go up there, right? So, like, let's feed people in space. Like, let's feed people in. Let's let's do this on a small scale, right? But instead, we have, you know, a hundred or so companies like vying to be the first person approved in X Y Z country, and and then to like be a global company. And so, um, things aren't local. Things aren't tested out. Things aren't reviewed in kind of a like a a, a slow path to market. It's like speed, right? Yeah. And uh, one of the uh, interesting, you have a section in your book that's speaking with uh, a lot of uh, future-looking people talking about their predictions about the future of food. And uh, some of them are suggesting that rather than investing all of this money in these uh, high-tech food uh, innovations, a better use of our resources would be to reform the system, the food system that we have right now, making it more environmentally sustainable, making it more local. Where do you come down on that question of where our attention in 2021 would be best placed? I want I want money going to all of these places, mm. right? I want more money going to regenerative organic agriculture and products that come from it. I want money going to soil. I want money going to like a bigger diversity of crops. You know, we only eat about 200 plants, right? But there are there are hundreds of thousands. Mm. So, you know, more more money looking into a, a continued diversity of our our diet that is both natural from the earth and uh, you know, innovation from the lab. Uh, I think you know, right now I just see the money going to one section of the food sector, and I think we want money going to all of them. I think we want the people making, we want more people making the decisions. We want more colors of people making the decisions, right? Right now, our global food system is being addressed by big multinational companies. Like, you know, it's in the hands of few, right? So they're not make they're not looking out for our best interests. And so it's like, let's get more voices. Let's get more diversity. Let's get more, more possibilities. Uh, that's, that's what I want in the future. Yeah. All right. Well, or, tw- or just 2021. <laughs> <laughs> think, think, think locally. Um, so uh, rounding things out, taking things to maybe a, a little bit of a lighter side, uh, once again, speaking with Larissa Zimbaroff about her new book, Technically Food Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. In the course of making this book, you ate a lot of these new products and uh, some of them you liked, some of them you liked less. Maybe just for uh, the, the consumers out there that are looking to try some of this stuff out, uh, get to know some of this food and, and maybe reduce the amount of meat in their diet. What are the food products that stood out the most to you? Yeah, Keith, I mean, let's just start with bacon, right? Mm. Uh, I love bacon and I have like immersed myself in trying every 
uh, alternative uh, bacon that's out there. And there are two that are really exciting. There are actually more than two, but there are two that I think are the front runners. Uh, mm. But so one is made from koji, which is a fungus that's grown also in tanks, right? It's uh, grown in tanks. It's like kind of a thready white material that's a protein. And then it's formed into slabs and then it's smoked and then it's sliced, even like on a traditional wow. meat deli slicer, right? Like that silver thing with the wheel. Uh, and, and then it's we flavored. Told folks we'd be pushing the limits here. Fungus, <laughs> fungus that makes bacon, all right? <laughs> fungus that makes bacon. And, it, and koji is what, what is used on to make soy sauce and mm. um, miso. So it's something that's been in our diet for centuries. And mm. so it's exciting. It's a Berkeley company called Prime Roots. And they have a sriracha. They have a maple. They have a pepper. And, you know, they're not bacon. They're not bacon from pigs. But in my mind, they're pretty good. And I'm happy to eat them. There's another company, if you're on the East Coast, called At Last. Uh, they're producing a bacon called My Eats, and it's made from mycelium. Now, mycelium are the, is the underground root structure of mushrooms. So it's not that the fruiting bodies are what you probably already know, but underground is like these thread-like structures that kind of eat everything in the forest. And mm. They're growing mycelium in long, long hundred foot trays, five feet wide that are then cut into slabs again and, and turned into bacon. And it's, it's, it's good. I, I'm like, I'm happy. It's savory. It's got a little fat. It's got a little tug. You know, I can have it with my like fake eggs made from mung beans. And these are fun, fun, healthy solutions. Mycelium, koji, these fungi products, this mycoprotein, I think has a ton of potential and I'd love to see it grow. All right. So uh, for all the skepticism there, there are a few bright spots and uh, folks can go look that up. I think uh, I'm taking notes right now. So uh, anyway, a lot of food for thought. We have been speaking to investigative journalist Larissa Zimbaroff about her new book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. Larissa Zimbaroff, thank you so much. Thanks, Keith. This is, this is great. Yeah. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.